Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to a Red Shirt Friday edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Carson Jorgensen, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is the same. We connect rural and urban America, and we do it with red shirts on Friday because we want to make sure that those individuals who have risked everything to protect our freedom in the name of the United States military know that we appreciate their endeavors. Got a call from longtime friend Dave Duquette yesterday. He said, Trent, you've got to get this guy on. And my initial thought was that I would have Carson Jorgensen, sheep rancher from Central Utah, join us Monday with Hank. But uh, I, I don't. I think we would get Hank so wound up, we might just send his ticker into overtime, and, and I'm worried about his health. <laughs> Carson, how are you? I'm good. How are you, buddy? I've never been better. I'm just kidding. Hank's health is perfect. I, I think he's healthier than he was 10 years ago, but you know Hank Bogler? There's plenty of people getting excited over this lamb deal, so it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Hank's easily excitable. Have you met Hank? I've never have. Uh-uh. Well, one day you need to make that happen because y'all are neighbors, you know. You're only about 400 miles right. apart. That's right. I've heard good things about him, and like I say, never been able to meet him. So, first of all, just describe ranching in central Utah, because I drive through there when I make my annual run to Elko or wherever I go west, and uh, I just think, man, it'd be cool to ranch in Utah. What's that like? It's good. My family, we've been at generations or so now, and and, and it's really great. I mean, we have a good climate for it. The sheep do extremely well. I mean, we've got the high mountains for the summers and the high desert for the winter there. And, and like I say, the sheep do extremely well in this climate. I mean, they feed well and it, it's good for the environment too. I mean, we're talking, we're keeping the fires down. It's neat to see the places where these sheep graze and it keeps the fires down. And like I say, I don't think you could ask for a better place to run sheep. Mm-hmm. And what is your structure in terms of you sell lambs? Do you feed them out? What do you do with the lambs? So we do a little bit of both. So we've got about 5,000 head of ewes right now. And, and so we'll raise our own lambs. But we'll also, every year, we buy a bunch of other local guys. We'll buy their lambs. And we used to buy a lot more. But just with the way the market is, we cut back a little bit on what we buy. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we'll buy others, feed them out, and feed them down. Some of them in California down to the Imperial Valley for the winter. And a lot of them will send, depending on how big they are, over to the feedlots there in Greeley. And then at some point, the ones from California will go to Greeley, and they all run through that plant there at Mountain State. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is ultimately what we're going to talk about. But before we get to that, uh, Carson, I have to ask you about the one thing that Hank bangs home every single week. It's pretty easy to find uh, sheep herders to go tend to those sheep all summer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish. It's funny you say that. We've got we've got a friend, a neighbor over here, and he's having to herd his own sheep right now because they can't find anybody to um, herd a sheep right now. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? It, it, her, herd your own sheep, right? It'd actually be nice. Turn off the phone. Turn off everything. Not even know there was a I, thing in the world. I gotta tell on. you, since I've gotten to know Hank, and he's been on my program every Monday for we're on now. We think seventeen years. 
When I make myself, I'm just, when I don't have to pay bills like I do, or maybe just, maybe that'll just eliminate it. I'm just going to get rid of the phone, get rid of electricity, go live in a sheep camp and herd sheep in North Spring Valley, Nevada. With exactly. My, with, with my the, mule with and my dog. sheep camps, you would be missing much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, yeah, it's, so yeah, it's getting tough. Like you say, it's, it, it's getting tougher and tougher every year. We need to work on something with the H2A program. So that we can make it a little easier to find and get these guys over here. Mm-hmm. Well, just final thing on that. The one thing that I just cannot get over, and Hank drills at home almost every week, is that with the H2A program, if the contract says they're a sheep herder, they can bring the sheep to the corral, but they can't work the sheep in the corral because that's not herding sheep. They can't fix the fence. They can't fix the tire on a sheep camp. Uh, I just can't get over all the bureaucracy and employing people to get a job done to keep a small business in business. Absolutely. And uh, there's there's some parts of that, too. It's like, yeah, I can see if you hire for a sheep herder, you don't have them out there driving tractors or farming. You know, that that's one thing. But like you say, they'll herd the sheep to the corral, and some of them will just sit down and say, no, I don't have to herd. I don't have to help you in the corral. It's like, Okay. Uh, to me, that's part of the sheep herding job, but yeah. apparently that's not what the bureaucracy thinks that, that this is about. So, Carson, the reason that we have gathered today is because uh, all of my friends in the cattle business are always on heightened awareness about consolidation and the meatpacker level, monopolistic control and activities. Uh, if we take a look over at the sheep business, I think cattlemen have nothing to talk about, and I'm not saying that cattlemen shouldn't be talking. I'm just saying it's much more severe. If we take just a quick glimpse at the history of the sheep business from what I've learned from Hank in 16 years, 1934, there's 70 million head of sheep in the United States. Today, we couldn't find 6 million head of sheep in the United States if we went to looking that obviously reduces the infrastructure. We have a tremendous amount, I believe it's 75, 80% of the lamb that we consume is imported from other countries. I have actually been around long enough that I was in the Haywarden, Iowa plant when it was still going. And today, in places to harvest package processed lamb, it's just harder and harder to find. And then you've got a new development that has taken place in recent times. So where do we start with all of this, Carson? Because it seems to be pretty pretty uh, streamlined, which is what we need to avoid. Yeah, and that that's the part here. It's getting a little bit disparaging because we see these plants, just like you said, they used to be all over the place. I mean, you could you could get you fetch yourself a fair price because there's multiple people bidding on these. There's a lot, lots of places for them to go, and the market was free and rolling. Well, now, the way everything is and with things consolidating like they are and with this recent acquisition of this plant that we're going to talk about here, it's getting dangerous because now you've got one or two big companies controlling 70% of the market, mm-hmm. which which to me is not the place you want to be, especially, like you said, your numbers are spot on. When you say 75 to 80% of our stuff is imported, this is, I mean, this is a situation we find ourselves in, and I hope the beef guys kind of look at this and say, let's not get to that point, because we've got ourselves into a situation now because we've sat quiet and let this happen for long enough that it's going to be hard to climb out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, we can name them, Rosen, Superior, and JBS Swift. Is there yeah. anybody left? And, I, 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 we'll talk about new plant in a moment but that's currently what the options are 
That's currently the options, and I don't even know what uh, Rosen has anymore because they the the co-op had bought out what was left of the Rosen there at that plant, mm-hmm. and that's why it was the Mount States Rosen plant. And so I'm not, to be frank with you, I, I don't know how much holding Rosen has in the United States anymore either. So you've got JBS, and you've got Superior. Superior has one plant in Denver, one in uh, Davis, California, correct? Yep, yep down in Dixon. Dixon, right. So, I mean, that, that's just... And what There was one in Detroit not that long ago. Is that still functioning? Yeah, so Wolverine is is in Detroit, I believe, and they're, okay. they're still functioning. I believe that they are the biggest packer now you say that. Now, mm-hmm. now that we're thinking about that, you've still got Wolverine out there. And I'm not sure right. who Wolverine, if they're, they're their own, I'm, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. And, and I'm just trying to complete the, the whole picture so that people listening that know nothing about sheep, which is most people because they're not involved, the biggest demand, here's where the whole problem comes in, the biggest demand for lamb is all on the East Coast because that's where the, yep. the greatest uh, multicultural diversity is. Uh, New Holland Livestock sells sheep and goats out of New Holland, Pennsylvania, left and right. And most of their market, quite frankly, because I've been there, I've done a radio from their their location, a tremendous sales barn. Uh, they sell into New York City, but those guys are buying 10 and 15 at a time, taking them home and butchering them in their own way. And so that 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 tends to be the whole structure for the lamb production and uh, harvesting in the U.S., right? Yeah, that that's that's it. So when when you get to those big cities like that, it's hard for them people to usually get those animals like that. Some of them have the benefits, some of them don't. But you like to say it's these ethnic groups that are that are eating this, and it's the big restaurants, it's the cruise ships, it's the hotels and casinos to where this land business is going. And and I've got to commend the beef industry on the good job that they've done marketing. Whereas in the lamb industry, we've kind of come up a little short when it comes to marketing, and we've let the foreigners kind of take the better name in this case. Yeah, and still we have the U.S. consumer at a half a pound of lamb per person per year, which is just not adequate. Carson Jorgensen, my guest, he's coming to a sheep rancher from central Utah. We'll talk about the congressional action, which is just in front of us, thanks to the efforts of this gentleman more after this now the way around these marketing issues that we're talking about today in the lamb business is to be a part of a brand to beef program get more information at lonecreekcattleco.com about the opportunity in the certified piedmontese system lonecreekcattleco.com ask for marlin will and say what is trent talking about in all of these premiums and i'm gonna get paid to ai my own cows really and not pay for semen Ask Marlon Will, LongCreekKettleCo.com, certified Piedmontese. Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Loose on a red shirt Friday. Are you wearing a red shirt, Carson? No, it's actually blue. Had I known it was red shirt Friday, I had to put a red one on. Well, we've only been talking about red shirt Friday since 1945 when the troops were coming <laughs> home from uh, World War II. So I could see why you wouldn't have heard about it yet in Utah. Yeah, exactly. We're still living in we're still living in the Stone Age here. So we've we've garnered we not we you uh, lamb producers have garnered some congressional attention. What what have you gotten done in the past week? Man, the, it, it has been a whirlwind of a week. I mean, I I caught wind of all this uh, a week ago Saturday. So we've had 
six days now to work on this and and i reached out to the guys who had tried to purchase the plant back they were on the board there at mountain states and i said you know what can we do because because that plant represented 20 percent of the killing capacity here in the united states and they're killing 360,000 a year with capacity to do up to 700, 800,000. Mm. And, and so we didn't, we kind of don't see a way around losing this. I mean, yeah, if, if this goes through, we have no choice. We're going to cart for something. Carson, else. I, I think I'm going to take responsibility for this. We should let people know we've not told them what is going through that led to the congressional okay. action. What, what's going on with JBS and Rosen? Yeah. So, so what happened was, um, this plant in Mountain State, um, they they went were they were trying to sell out earlier on this year. JBS controlled the wastewater contracts, um, so the sale to this other third party could not go through. JBS didn't want to transfer over the wastewater contracts for those, and, and so the sale didn't go through. They were forced into bankruptcy. JBS um, outbid the guys who were trying to buy it back to keep it a land facility. They outbid them by four hundred or two hundred thousand dollars is all. Outbid them, and uh, now they're going to close down the plant and use it for a beef grind or something like that. They say, but but essentially they're shutting down a fifth of the processing here in the United States, and we're just not sure how the lamb industry can handle this. We just we we don't see a way through this without another substitute open. Yeah. Uh, let's take one other step backwards because I don't remember why or how this happened, but one day I delivered a load of lambs to a gentleman in southeast South Dakota to a, a lamb feedlot, and he was all excited because he was part of a group that was based in Wyoming that were going to start this Mountain States co-op and marketing lamb because there was not enough options in marketing lamb. And I'm thinking this might have been 25 years ago, Carson, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mountain States that we've <clears throat> referenced here a couple of times, that is simply a co-op of lamb producers that were trying to find a way to expand marketing opportunities 25 years ago. Is that correct? Sounds about right to me. Yeah, so there was 149 families mm-hmm. and ranchers in that deal, and it was just a co-op where people were looking for a way to expand the market, which is really what we need. And that really brings about the question, because right now in the beef sector and some of it in the pork, not as much, we have people who own the cattle who are talking about we need to get involved. And at some level, we need to find a way to get closer to the consumer. Here's a group of 150, let's say, lamb producers that did exactly what we think should happen. And it didn't work. I don't know that either one of us are in a position to say why it didn't work, but it comes back to with the price of lamb. I mean, you go to any grocery store where they've got good lamb chops. They've, they have not been under $20 a pound for quite some time. So it's easy for Cowboy Logic to say, if you're selling lamb chops for $20 a pound, why can't we keep a packing plant profitable in Greeley, Colorado? Or Denver, I mean. Yep. Yeah. And why can't we keep our producers profitable is the bigger question. I mean, I mean, you're seeing lamb prices up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're seeing the fact that you see your cow go into the <laughs> to the feeder or the processor at X amount, and you see it coming out at the grocery store at X amount, and you're like, okay, who's taking all my money out of the middle? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the deal with lamb. People are like, oh, you've got to be making a fortune on your lambs because they're so expensive in the store. It's like lamb prices are between eighty cents and a dollar right now going into the into the feeder. It's like, 
and you like you said, you see them coming out at twenty bucks a pound, and you're like, okay, where is that money going, and why am I not seeing it? Well, to be fair, uh, the challenge with the producers, and I'm speaking out of just past experience, not firsthand knowledge of this situation, but past experiences, the producers form a co-op, they get in the business, but the global giant in uh, in the lamb packing business is a company nobody's ever heard of. It's called JBS Swift. Oh, wait, it's the same person that's a giant in pork and beef and lamb. I have to also come full circle and, and explain or, or share that I've been very fortunate to speak to the Lamb X event in Australia two times. Uh, part of my sponsorship was from JBS Swift, that my exposure to them in Australia has been very educational. I, I went in some lamb plants. They do a good job at harvesting and packaging and processing and marketing. I just don't appreciate how they handle themselves in the marketplace in terms of just steamrolling everybody and trying to to buy the whole thing. And so the real answer to the question, Carson, that we're dancing around here is that our competitors, particularly Australia, and when you have the same entity, a Brazilian-owned JBS Swift in the marketplace, they can import lamb from Australia and their plants cheaper than they can buy lambs from you, harvest them in their facility in Colorado, and sell a, a U.S. lamb. Therein lies the problem. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely, and everybody's about, and you can't blame big corporations like that because they're about the bottom dollar. And when, when they can do that, because of the way that the lamb is produced in other countries, it's kind of hard to compete with that. But whereas the American lamb, we're, then that's why people want to say, well, why are you so mad about it? And it's like, well, look here in America. We buy American equipment. We buy American cars. We buy American fuel. We pay American taxes. And we're contributing to the economy here in America as well as grazing and mitigating fires and doing things like that. So we're doing more than just providing a product, whereas these imports are just providing a product. And somehow, Carson, we've allowed the importers of lamb to uh, put on the on the menu Australian lamb. And it be sold as a premium product when, in fact, I'm not saying it's inferior. I have the quality of lamb I've eaten in Australia is phenomenal, but it's not domestic. And yet they've been yeah. able to say it's like Australian lamb, which is a marketing tool. That was our fault for yeah. for letting it happen. That Australian lamb is perceived, and New Zealand, by the way, even though they're yeah. two different countries, the perception seems to be the same. So kudos to them for getting that done, but why didn't we get it done? And you hit the nail on the head, and that's what I mentioned here earlier. I mean, I, I've got to hand it to the beef market because they've done a way better job. I mean, it's American beef. And I had somebody just, I mean, just within three or four days ago, a gal commented on a post on Facebook and said, Americans raise lamb? I've never seen it. The only thing I ever buy is New Zealand lamb. And I was just like, therein lies the root of the problem. How we have marketed so poorly to let New Zealand or Australian lamb become a better name. I mean, you'll see it on menus. You see it in the store. People want to buy New Zealand or Australian lamb because, like you said, it is perceived as a superior product. Uh, just one final pitch for the Australian lamb producer because uh, we think about them being so heavy and sheep. They have 75 million 
lambs, sheep, total sheep inventory in Australia today, exactly what we had in 1934. But in 1950, they had 150 million. So they have the same pressures that we do. So it comes back to they're out marketing us. How do we fix that? Right. And then when you have somebody yeah. who has a global interest like JBS Swift in the middle, steamrolling our producers because they can bring their imported lamb from Australia cheaper, that's what leads to the need for congressional investigation at least. I think it's yeah. that simple, don't you? I, I, I truly believe that because, honestly, this is more than just, when you look at the big scheme of things, this is more than just a product. I mean, this is more than just a business this is American, this is national defense to me, because it is so important right now, and COVID has exposed this, it is so important right now that we focus on domestic supply, that we here in the United States have control over our food system, so that if something happens, like COVID-19, that if trade is shut down completely, that everybody can still get three square meals a day. That is the important part here. And Carson Jorgensen bringing us the important part. We're halfway through. We'll be back with more red shirt. I guess it's a red and blue shirt Friday. More after this. Here's the thing. We have the tools available for precision agriculture, particularly in the animal business. Neogen is the genetic, uh, what do you, what do we call this? Looking at the genes, the DNA markers, Neogen shines a light on your genetic future. How's that? When we talk about identifying the traits that we want to ramp up in production, Neogen can run a test, and it's very economical. It's not like you're going to spend hundreds of dollars. For less than $20, you're going to find out which daughters of what bull you'll want to keep into the herd. You'll find out who can marble. You'll find out what who has the alleos and the genetic markers to make progress. You cannot afford to not know these things in food production in 2020 and 2021. Neogen.com. That's where you get full details about shining a light on your genetic future. Or in the case of pets, you might shine a light on your genetic past. Welcome back to Rural Route, Trent Luce. Alongside Carson Jorgensen coming to us from the rough country of central Utah. Not the flats. Good sheep country. Hey, we are uh, just booming across northeast Colorado at the moment. Um, I've had friends, and I meant to call somebody in the rural family. I apologize for not calling yesterday. I was going to get some background. I continue to get tidbits of information about what's going on with a new plant and brush for lamb harvesting. Carson, are you up to speed on that? Do you know what the situation is there? Yeah, we're just kind of hearing the same things. We're hearing what what people are saying about the plant and and what we know. So, I mean, I can give you as much as I know, as much as I've heard. Um, the plant's supposed to come online here shortly, within the next couple months. From what we understand, it's just a kill only. There's no fab, no individual packaging, and, and that's what we're losing with Mountain State. So that's really what we're worried about. It is is those individual cuts that can be processed and easily sold to the bigger chain stores. So if we don't do fabrication, then we're taking um, probably primals and trying to sell those, or are they not, not surely not thinking they're going to sell swinging halves? Uh, as far as I know, it's carcasses. Oh, who's going to buy that in 2021? That That's what we're wondering, and that's what we're really worried about is the fact that, you know, we've got, we've got swinging carcasses. How much carcass business 
can we drum up? And we want everybody to be successful. The more that we, more that we spread this load around, the better the market's going to be. But we have to think about it objectively here too. Mm-hmm. Like how many, how many fab places do we have that are not connected to big plants? I mean, there is Catelli's back east. They take in carcass, cut them up, repackage for sale. But there are not very many of those that exist. Right. Well, uh, a big chunk of that East Coast thing that I talked about earlier has to be supplied by that. But I don't know. That, that looks like a tough deal. But the bigger question, Carson, is that if we look at this uh, acquisition of JBS on Mountain States slash Rosen, um, we lose options. How do we change the discussion to say we need to increase? Because just... Just a congressional oversight investigation. Let's say that they, they come up with the answer. Yes, this is illegal. There's too much control here by JBS Swift. What, what's the solution? What happens? That's it. We're, what we're hoping is that they will put a stop to the sale. The sale's supposed to go through today, so we'll know by probably lunchtime today what happened. And we're trying to, we're trying right now to have them put a hold on the sale until we can do that investigation into how much of this market is going to fail because this plant goes away. And there there are statutes, there are things that say that we can't remove X amount of production during a time of crisis, and, and President Trump has made that very clear right now that we need to keep our meat packers open, and, and we need to keep this processing open at least until we can find a suitable substitute to fill this void because I mean, when you talk about 360,000 lambs, that's a lot of families that here in two months, the first of October, we'll start bringing these sheep off the summer range who will have these lambs ready to go to market. And I've had growers, I've had feeders say, you know what? I could pay somebody $0 for these things and still lose money because I've got nowhere to send them. Meanwhile, I just got off the, uh, another show earlier this morning with uh, Ambassador, U.S. Ambassador Kip Tom to the Food and Agricultural Organization and the World Food Program, part of the United Nations, who's in Rome, Italy. He's an Indiana farmer who's representing farmers in Rome, Italy. And he was talking about trying to feed 100 million people that are hungry, and the increase has gone significantly higher as a result of COVID. Here we have U.S. farmers and ranchers who know how to produce food, more hungry people in the world than we've had in recent times, and farmer can't find a market, a fair market for the food food that we produce. Something right. needs to be fixed. Right, and and that's what we're looking into right now. We're looking into how we can change this market, how we can fix the dynamic of this market, because it's the same way in the cows right now. Somebody told me yesterday that there is a backlog of cows, a pretty big backlog of cows in the United States, but yet we're still pouring imports in when we can't even kill our own. We can't we can't have people going hungry. Like that is the one thing nobody wants to see. We can't have people it, going it, hungry. Actually in the cattle market it's the strangest thing I've ever it could have experienced in my life. The way up cow market so if you take a cow that it's gonna be weighed up and go into the ground beef supply they're as high as they've been in five years. Uh, I got a friend, of course, they were Piedmontese cows. He sold them the other day for 94 cents a pound. That's incredible. There's bulls bringing over a dollar. And yet on the, the market cattle side, 
there is a what we call a bottleneck where we still are not getting cattle in or not getting paid what they should get paid. The packer to producer spread is is historically high, and it's just the strangest dichotomy. Nobody, I don't think any economist could have ever have predicted where we're at, and it has to make one wonder: is it we're pushing the limits to where the producers who are continuing to generate the supply are in jeopardy? And there won't be a supply. Uh, we're at that point. We are at that point where the producers are just bar- and this is all across the spectrum, lamb and mm-hmm. beef. Yeah. The producers are barely getting by in a lot of these instances. I mean, you talk to any anybody, you talk to any growers and ask them how they run their operation. I would say 85 to 90 percent of them are all on revolving loans through a credit company. Right. And they are every year just meeting those payments. That's all they're doing. They're not they're not making money. They're just getting by. And, and when is it going to hit the point that we break these people? And, and it feels to me like they're all going to break at the same time. And with a market as fickle as what's happening here, how many? How big is this snowball from the MSR plant? How big is it going to get? Because you start to collapse one portion of the industry, can the other portion hold it up? And back to remaining on the solution, Carson. You know, we've been talking about since March 1 in particular – this is a reset button opportunity in the nation's food supply. And, and I happen to believe that the, the big corporate packers are not bad. But I also believe that they should not be implementing uh, mo- uh, mon- monopolistic control and doing things like we see happening here. And the answer clearly is a greater infrastructure of the small and mid-sized plants like Mountain State's uh, cooperative and, and Rosen. And here we have the elimination of those. And I think that's been my concern. And in fact, I wrote my column about this basic concept this week. It wasn't about lamb in particular, but it's about if we're not careful at a time when we think that we're doing what you said in the first segment and COVID has brought an awareness of the importance of food production, the means of national security, and that we need more local, uh, smaller, mid-sized food processors of all food, not just in the meat packing business. While we're talking about that, we're seeing more consolidation than ever because those of us that are small and mid-sized are going out left and right. And even the small custom butcher shops, which are busier than they could ever imagine, they're booking 14 months out. What the people tend to forget is it's no different than you and your H-2A workers on the ranch. They can't get people to show up to cut up the meat that they have. And the people who are showing up are tired and it's just a, a situation that I see unfolding not in the favor of the farmer and the rancher. No, it, it's a dangerous situation we've got ourselves in. Like you say, people have just become accustomed to the, over the years we've become accustomed to these big operations. We send them to the big feed yards, we send them to the big packers, and they're processing hundreds of thousands a year. But I think you're you're right. The USDA has made it difficult, too for this sale to people because we cannot take a lamb and get it killed outside of a USDA facility and then turn around and sell it to a person. Like we have to jump through those USDA hoops to be able to get it to the consumer. And we're all about safe food, but we've got to start looking at this. Like we have to have more small plants that can handle 500, 600 a week that are close to these metropolitan areas because people right now, um, we've all seen this push to buy local. 
We've mm-hmm. all seen this push to buy from the farmers, and the farmers don't really have that capacity when it comes to meat. Yeah, when it comes to vegetables, produce, things like that, from the farmers, you can you can you see these roadside stands all the time. But with meat, it's not really that way, and, and so it kind of puts farmers into a bind because there's only certain channels for them. When you wipe out a major one of those. It makes it really difficult to recover from. So, like you say, I think we need to, going forward in the future, need to start focusing on um, working in legislation, too, to ease back some of the USDA regulations so that we can have these small processing plants because it costs a lot of money for these plants to become USDA certified. There needs to, we need to be working on things like that to where we can open these smaller plants to get these products to the consumers like they want to have them because that provides them a better product. I mean, you, you and I both know that if you take your own to a butcher and, and you get it killed and it, it's fresh as can be, they're always better. And, and so it, it, it's, it's about product, it's about availability, and it's about moving forward in the future here. It's easy for the USDA to take the first step because I can get people to line up all over this country that have been involved with both. I, my best example is a family in Pennsylvania that I sell pigs to, breeding stock, and they have their own little meat, meat shop. And his wife was a USDA inspector. And how they are treated in their own plant compared to how she was organizing one of the big multinational plants, it's apples and oranges. It's not the same mm-hmm. system. They expect so much more from smaller plants. Just treat everybody the same. USDA, that's the yeah. first step. That's where you need to start. Uh, I need yeah. to take a break. Carson, we are going to finish up. We have one segment of Rural Route left. Today is the day the sale could be happening as we speak. We're trying to get it on, put on pause at least to take a moment to look at what's really happening. We're going to change the tone of the conversation when we come back. I'm going to surprise Carson with where we're going to go after this. All right. We talked about the certified Piedmontese opportunity, which is really the answer to what Carson and I are talking about, seeking a new and alternative market option. That's the answer. We identify these genetics through Neogen. That's how we know that the certified or the Piedmontese gene, myostatin gene it is. By the way, that's responsible in other breeds of cattle as well. It's just that Lone Creek has really zeroed in on creating that opportunity with the certified Piedmontese business. Some of our lemmy cows have the myostatin gene, and it's Neogen that gives you the test. And it's amazing. They can tell you whether this is a lemmy, myostatin gene or a Piedmontese myostatin gene. Looking on the inside of the DNA and the genomics of these animals, no doubt that's the future. Don't forget to watch the stand at Paxton County this week, and it'll be a great opportunity to watch the stand at Paxton County on Netflix. That's everything I have to say. Now we'll get back to Carson. Welcome back to Rural Route Trent Lewis alongside Carson Jorgensen joining us from Central Utah Sheep Rancher and proudly tells people he's not like Hank Vogler and hides it. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Just trying to get Hank stirred. I'm guessing there's going to be a follow-up to this discussion on Monday, so get ready, Hank. Uh, I want to ask you a different question, Carson, because you are a, a sheep rancher, but you also, as I understand from Dave, 
um, that you recently ran a political campaign. What? Why did you do that? You know, uh, so I ran for Congress here in Utah. Well, actually for the National Congress and the House of Representatives, but representing the state of Utah here. The reason why is because exactly this reason right here. I see our way of life going out the window. I see the life that you and I love, the ranching rural lifestyle. I, I see it going away if we don't stand up and do something. Um, and that was kind of my deal behind that is, you know what, we need people in powerful places that can actually advocate for agriculture, who actually have the say and the means to make change, like we're talking about this whole time. This is all top-down legislation that's crushing the little guy, that's crushing us. And, and we wonder why people aren't making it. Well, start to look at the reg- legislation. People say, well, why can other countries produce cheaper? Yeah, some of it's the environment, but also a lot of it's legislation. And and that's why I ran for Congress is because I wanted to get to a point where I could make a difference for agriculture. And now we've found other means to do that. But we've all got to start standing up. We've all got to start speaking out or else we're going to lose what we really love. And as I understand it, you ran against the Republican incumbent? I did. <laughs> Which people hearing that, I want to walk down that path for a reason, Carson, because, you know, I think a lot of us think we would fall into line with, well, he's a Republican conservative. He follows my train of thought anyway, he or she. Uh, I'm not going to challenge them. But I I assure you, even though you you got beat, I assure you yeah. just the fact that you made somebody who represents our interest think about and deal with um, the thoughts that you were bringing to the forefront in a campaign. The reason the campaign works is that it challenges each person to think about what's really important to my constituents. If you don't get challenged ever along the way, you start just going down one tunnel and not thinking about the bigger picture. So I would suggest right. that uh, without on the path. <laughs> without knowing anything about your campaign, I would suggest that you made a huge difference. You know what's funny that you should mention that um, that guy's the guy that I ran against. Like I say he's a good guy. I have nothing against him, but I think sometimes our priorities get skewed, and my priorities are going to be different than him. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to see was different than what he wants to see. But I, I like I say I like the guy, but I'm super proud because his name was signed on to the legislation that was submitted to the attorney general on Wednesday. He, he signed on the letter investigating, jumping this investigation into the antitrust. So I was, I was very happy to see that and to know that this was a priority to him. And hopefully me running against him had some impact on that. And I, I see that around the country. Yeah, whether you win or lose is almost irrelevant. It's the fact that they know somebody's willing to try and that their job is not always safe because people are watching and people want them to be doing a good job and representing, like you say, each and every one of the people in their district, not just one or two. Okay, so along those lines, you learned things and saw things from a different perspective than you did before you campaigned. What was that? You know, that's really, go ahead. No, I just wondered what the top of mind one was. You know, this this legislation, you see us cruise through this week. I mean, we filed a, a paper with Mike Lee's office on Monday. He was already investigating the antitrust with JBS. 
these relationships that I've developed, what I found is you don't get anywhere without relationships and we have to have relationships and we have to keep open dialogue with a lot of different people to be able to make these things happen. We can't just suck back into our own industries. We can't just keep our mouth shut and stay quiet. And we have to expand our reach. We have to get in front of these legislators. We have to reach out to them and make them understand because they, what I found is that they don't understand that they see agriculture from an outside scope. And so as long as they don't know how to handle it, there's nothing they can do. But as we get it in front of them, as we break it down and say, this is what's affecting us, this is why it's affecting us, then they start to understand. Then they can actually iterate the problems to their colleagues, and their colleagues can start to see things a little different. And I think that's why we were able to get from nothing to a letter to the attorney general's office in three days because these people started to understand, you know what, this is a serious problem. And I think it all came from, like you said, that reset button that COVID's provided. People have seen how vulnerable our food supply is, and they're starting to put attention to it. So for me right now, if we want to make a change in the industries, if we want to push back against our food system and, and to really regain control of our market, from now till the end of the year, is there's never been a better time to start working on it. In the district you're running, you were running and campaigning for, what's the largest town, urban area? Um, probably 100,000, 150,000, mm-hmm. but that's, that's the big town. It, it did take in a chunk of downtown Salt Lake. It's a strange, strange district, but it also took in most of the sheep country in the West Desert all the way out to Wendover. I mean, it had a variety of different issues, but that's, that's kind of another part of this is, they lump these rural areas in with these big cities, mm-hmm. and the big cities take the attention, and the rural guys get overlooked. So you got all 12 of the sheep ranchers in your district to vote for you, but the 120,000 yeah. folks that don't understand resource management, they just were you able to garner their attention in any way, shape, or form? You know, we actually were, and and we turned this discussion, I'm glad you went this direction, because we turned this discussion on something else, because we found in the ag industry that people really only care about what affects them. And, And yes, meat prices affect them, but that's kind of hard to get through them. But here in Utah, we have a serious problem with with air quality in in the big city. And uh, during fire season, that place is hard to breathe in. And and we posed it to them. They're like, well, we don't want all this ag on, on public lands. Like, we don't want to see livestock on our public lands. Well, you know why the places we're not grazing continue to burn every seven or eight years? It's because we're not grazing them. And we need to get together and we need to have strategic grazing of these areas so that we don't have to spend $100 million a year to fight fires, so that we're actually stimulating the economy, growing businesses, letting people expand their herds, while keeping your air quality good. And that, that was really an eye-opener to me, how much these people care about things like that. Yeah, can you explain, because I, I still don't really grasp it, the angst about ranchers grazing federal lands, which federal lands, you, you could drive through uh, salt flats is not a good example, but you could leave that salt flats come up into Wendover look out there and most people would say man there's nothing out there and yet that nothing thanks to a rancher and some sheep or some cows or even some horses 
can turn that nothing into something that people need to live. And yet when they see animals owned by somebody grazing and improving that habitat for wildlife, for their wild horses, they get all bent out of shape. I, I just don't understand the core of that. Uh, it's a, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, it's a lack of education. Um, people like you and I are around it all the time. So we see it and it makes absolute sense to us, but most people don't get that firsthand look. And we as farmers and ranchers have not done a good enough job as, as educating the general public as we should, that we need to have use some of our advertising money to, to work towards education of people and show them like this looks like a barren desert. All it is, is black sage white sage and a little bit of bud sage but yet these sheep absolutely love it and they come home off the desert as fat as they went out to the desert and most people think nothing could even live there right. and what how how amazing is this and and not only that that how grazing is good for the forest how it yeah it keeps fires down but you're also taking off that tall bed grass so that next year that new fresh grass can grow and these are the type of things that we need to that we need to talk about. I saw a TED talk once about um, how to fight desertification in Africa by mm -hmm. grazing it with cows, and how they were taking the deserts and turning them back into lush green places by strategic grazing. And we need more of that. Yeah, and that was Alan Savory, and his son Roger joins me on this program often to remind people that holistic management of the resource is the key and the future. Um, yeah. so I just wanted to share this story with you on this very program yesterday. I think a light was turned on for me. I had an urban farmer with a, a quarter of an acre in Chicago. Natasha Nichols is her name. Okay. And she is taking it upon herself to, to be a farmer and turn her community in the city limits of Chicago into a community that people want to be a part of again. My hat is off to her. I, I have nothing but respect and admiration for what she's doing. But she shared Absolutely. something with me, Carson, that, that I think sheds a big light into this discussion. <clears throat> the largest trend in Chicago, in her neighborhood, is that people are abandoning buildings. People no longer want to own property because it's more convenient to have a landlord own it and you just pay a rent. Now, on the surface, we may think about that as just Chicago and it's its own little microcosm. But I heard that, and I thought, this is why we're challenged in federal lands. This is why we're challenged in me maintaining my own property. This is why we can have people give speeches and say that property rights was archaic and was a lousy idea, the right for people to own land. We've had a shift in mindset in how people view the value of owning property. That's why you have challenges. That's why I have challenges. And I think in that one little statement, Natasha Nichols shared something that was just a light bulb moment. And if we need to all factor that in as we continue to go forward and champion property rights, which is what we've been talking about since we started. Absolutely. And that's for us years ago. I mean, we had plenty of property right here around where we're in our spring country. That's our biggest time of the year is in between the desert when we're lambing and between going to our summer country. The spring ground is pretty hard to get because that's where everybody wants to buy houses. That's where they want to build everything. And, and 
we have lost so much over the past 15 years. And we looked at it last year and like, we don't have enough anymore. Luckily, we have acquired we've bought and we inherit, my grandma inherited and, and it fills that gap for us. But without it, every year we see property going away. I got the message property is going away and we are, here's what else has gone away. Time. We have successfully journeyed, we'll know more of what, what happened by Monday. We've successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America, both Carson Jorgensen and myself remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route.